right, this is Plowing Forward with Chet Mosloom in for the Lands at Hillside Farms. And our guest today is Clancy Harrison. She's a registered dietitian. Uh, she has more letters after her name than the Cambodian alphabet. She's the founder of the Food Dignity Movement and one of the most compassionate and empathetic people that I've ever met in my life. So to start, I'd love you to define what a Food Dignity Movement is or what the Food Dignity Movement is. Yeah, that's a really good question because I think we're defining it every single day when we're uh, faced with a new challenge. And so the biggest thing I have to say, food dignity, a lot of people might say, oh, Clancy, is that, does that mean I'm getting a filet mignon instead of ground beef at the food pantry? I'm like, well, from the simplest, simplest terms, yeah, I guess you can define it, but that's not even close to the definition. That would be extremely surface level. When I think of food dignity, I think of dignity and respecting everyone, even when we find it hardest to maybe disagree with someone that might have extremely different values or viewpoints than ourselves. So for us, and that you might be thinking, what does that have to do with food? And so there's a lot of stigma and shame associated with food assistance programs and food access. And, and a big piece of our work is how do we start normalizing access to nutrient-rich foods that people feel confident, they feel comfortable, they feel valued, seen, understood to be able to ask for the help that they need during a hardship. And most of the times it is a temporary hardship. Sometimes it could be longer than other people. And the whole goal is, is really to dignify all of our actions in everything that we do. And how we practice that, especially I used to run a food pantry. And so every day we would always say, where's the lesson? What am I going to learn today? And how do I stop judging? How do I stop projecting my lived experience onto other people and truly set that aside and try to understand maybe barriers around food access, maybe the emotions they might be feeling coming into that food pantry so we can help put them at ease. So when I think of food dignity, it's a lot more than food. It's really how do we, how do we work with people in a, in a way that we can truly understand and value someone with the utmost dignity. And again, one last thing, even it, when it's the hardest for us to do that. Yeah, th that's interesting. So I've stereotyped, no doubt, um, not that I've been at your organization's place a million times, but I was there a couple of times and you find yourself saying, wait a second, look at this car. What's going on? So I understand there was COVID, but there has to be some of that going on. You have, it, it's not every day you open the paper and you see somebody starved to death. And then you see people in line that look like they might have some money. So how does that all fit in? Yeah, uh, really great question. So when I'm working with people, actually, there was a gentleman at, that was standing next to me helping direct traffic at one point early on in the pandemic. And he said, well, what do you do? How, how do you prevent people from coming through this line more than once? They're just here to get the free food. And part of me wanted to say, well, that's the point. It's a, it's a food pantry and it's free food. Of course, they're here for the free food. But I knew that wasn't where he was going. And so for me, I could have acted out in a way that would have created more tension or put up a wall or he could have gotten defensive. But instead, I I asked him a question and it and it was, how would you ever wait in a line that could be 
an hour and a half, two hour wait, because this is in the height of the pandemic. We were still trying to get organized and efficient with our process. Our line was extremely long. And I said, would you ever wait in this line, not knowing if you're going to get food and not even having the opportunity to pick what type of food you would have? And when I presented it in a curiosity type way, he leaned forward and he's like, huh, I never thought of it that way. And so it opened up a new dialogue for us to consider other possibilities. And I think that that's really important when we talk about someone, well, look at them, they have a nice car. So if I had a volunteer and they were saying that to me, I would, I would say, well, why don't we rethink about rethink how we are approaching this. Maybe it's a different situation. Maybe they borrowed their sister's car. Maybe it's their boss's car. Maybe they lost their job. They can't sell their car, but they can still get from point A to point B. And when we start defining different opportunities or different situations that are different than our judgment, we actually then have less resentment, right? So in, in a way, this is really great self-care. If I, if I can think of, from a, come from a place that everyone's trying to do their best with the situation that they have and knowing that I don't walk in their shoes, I don't have the same choices that they have and they don't have the same choices as I have. And so if I can always just accept that we're all doing our best versus automatically judging and having a negative reaction, I'm, gonna, I'm probably going to go home and not think twice about it, right? But if, I, if I'm sitting there saying, well, they have a nice car, I can't believe that they're coming through our line, then I'm probably going to go home, I'm going to stew on it, I might talk to my husband about it, I might talk to my friends about it, I might put it on Facebook, and then I'm just creating all these negative energies. So actually, in a way, when we approach food access from this lens with this dignified approach. It's also a version of self-care, but it also helps us step away again from that lived experience that we might be projecting onto other people. And I think the way that you handled that person's question or comment was good because if if you attack, you create defensiveness and there's no progress in any way. Um, And, you know, along the same lines. So there's this stereotype and I don't know anybody who hasn't held it in some point. When you get to like wick and snap that it's it's every generation, it's certain groups of people. They're gaming the system, right? Um, they're not even getting nutritious food with these stamps. They're, they're, they're selling them for whatever, right? Do you, do you see that? Am I wrong? Oh, no, it's uh, I've done a lot of interviews myself. And the one thing that was reoccurring in many of my interviews. So back in, oh, my goodness, was it 2015, 2016, I was interviewing people for the Voices Project uh, for Congress, where we were interviewing people from all over the nation and five people were going to be selected. So it's the Community Voice Project. And I was doing it on behalf of the National Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. And I interviewed a lot of people. I had access to people locally who wanted to be interviewed. And they all had the same story of standing in line. And there's one story that really stuck out to me. And it was a single mother who was a retired Army vet. She was going to school full time. She had to work 10 hours a job, so she would have the child care assistant that our state offers, and she was using her SNAP benefits to check out. And the, the gentleman, and again, I'm going to be dignified here, the gentleman behind her said, you're welcome. And, and if you think about her situation, he probably should have been saying thank you because she served 
in our government. The GI Bill in the state of Pennsylvania cannot can only be used for education, so she couldn't use it for food or housing. She was active in the National Guard. She's going to school full-time, working part-time, and is a single mom who ended up getting her four-year degree, went on to get her master's in speech pathology, and now she does not need any of the assistance that she was on. Now, would she have been able to do what she did if she didn't if she didn't have access to those, to food stamps, well, SNAP benefits, the um, child care subsidy? Probably not. So we really need these programs to help people actually get out of poverty and get the jobs that they need. Um, And so we really need to start rethinking about that. Uh, You know, it's an investment in our in our future leaders, uh, our future children. But unfortunately, many people and, and I'm one of those people that you know, before I started working at the food pantry as a volunteer, again, I put myself in a situation I never was at. I had my misconceptions going into that. And I thought there was going to be people using the system, taking advantage of our tax dollars. And that's where I realized I was wrong. And so then I went down this road of food dignity and trying to figure out where I was wrong so I could be right. And that's that's just been the process I've chosen to be on. But when it but going back to those food assistance programs, it's really important that we we try to understand how important they are as an investment in our society. Do you, you you said part of this is fluid. So when you say fluid or um, that hunger is fluid, I, I picture people losing jobs or this woman right in this particular circumstance. People that are fine coming into it, then getting out of it, sort of getting a help. But is there any part of it that that is generation over generation, people are stuck. If, and if there is, what's the root cause of that? Is it them? Is it our society? Is it the well, structure of our society? Yeah. I mean, well, first I should, I should be very clear here that food insecurity is a symptom of poverty. Uh, someone could be food insecure, but also not live in poverty. Someone could be living in poverty and not be food insecure. And so let me just explain how that could work. So if I'm someone who is living at the poverty level, but I'm able to utilize the programs around such as SNAP, school meals, WIC, then I'm going to have access to the foods that I need to thrive. My child would have to thrive. They could go to school. They could graduate, hopefully go on to a trade school or go on to a a university, get a job and be productive citizens in, in, in the way that we want people to be. Now, someone who has money or lives above the poverty level could also be food insecure. So that maybe they just make enough money that they don't qualify for food assistance. But if you also think of elderly people who are in their homes, they have not left yet to maybe go onto a nursing home. They might not be able to cook. They might have have arthritis. They might not be able to cut up the fruits and vegetables that they need. So they might be eating different types of food. And I do want to make a really good point here that food insecurity is not just starvation. Food insecurity could also be that you have enough food, but you're constantly eating instant noodles every single day and you're not getting the nutrients you need. I often say that going to college, actually surviving on instant noodles in college is not a rite of passage. That's most likely food insecurity. So I think when we talk about poverty and food insecurity, we do have to be careful there. Does generational poverty occur in the United States? Yes, of course it does. Is that the source of food insecurity that Um, really hits us hard in the United States? Not necessarily, but I think when we think of the definition of hunger, 
uh, we tend to forget about the one that I just told you about, the instant noodles in college and surviving on that. And we need to remember that food insecurity has, has a very large scope in its definition, and it's not narrowed down to inner city poverty, generational poverty, third world country. It's actually in every single zip code in the United States. Uh, we have children who are food insecure, and really we should be using the language nutrient insecure, uh, that are playing soccer against your children in suburbia America. So, and, and I think that if we could say that there's something good that came out of the pandemic, one is that it did shine a spotlight on a hidden crisis in the United States. It did make us more aware of what nutrient insecurity is or hunger in the United States. And I think we've all learned that through this pandemic, anyone at any time could find themselves in a situation where they had to go to a food pantry. And we saw that at our food pantry a lot over the past year and a half. You were very busy. So it's not just a money thing. It could be a, a skills or capability thing. The example you gave with arthritis, it could be right. an education thing where yep. you're eating a lot, but it's not nutritious. But who, who's responsible for fixing all of this? Just you? I mean, who, like, is it the federal government swoops in? Uh, and that's maybe where you get some resistance, right? From people like who, who's really responsible for this? Should, should the federal government be responsible for everybody under level, you know, X dollars? Or is it the, the church, the local community, volunteers, people like you? Who is responsible? Yeah, so another great question. This is a hard one, right? Uh, this is a controversial one. First, I want to say as someone who ran a food pantry for almost 12 years, we need to get hunger out of the charity box. I think there's a time and place for Feeding America and food banks. I think they're doing a great job. I think we need to change the narrative that they have. They keep calling themselves a charitable food system. I think they need to be called the food access experts. They need to change their mentality and they need to start approaching society as this is not a charitable problem. This is everyone's problem. If you are a business owner and you're listening and you have employees, most likely you have employees who are a little stressed about their food access or a lot stressed about their food access. And we know that if someone does not have access to nutrient-rich foods, so again, that's nutrient insecurity, they're at risk for 10 chronic diseases. So then how does that impact the bottom line of the company? Well, the bottom line of the company, healthcare utilization rates are going to go through the roof if someone has a chronic disease. And if we're at risk for 10 chronic diseases, there's a lot of things that can go wrong here. So maybe people might leave work early because they're sick. Maybe they're less productive on the job. Maybe there's a lot of presenteeism, absenteeism. Maybe they have to miss work because their kids are sick. So all these things are happening and it's costing people money. The hunger bill in the United States is $160 billion. And so I, I feel that that's a sticker shock, but I also look at that as the place for us to either save money or make money. And if I was a business, I would invest in making sure that my employees had access to nutrient-rich foods because I know it's going to Im improve morale. People are going to want to be at work. They're going to be more productive. They're going to be sick less over time. It's going to help decrease our healthcare costs, which is going to save our bottom line. I mean, we're seeing 50% in healthcare uh, increase risk when we have to renew our, our our healthcare insurance every year. So, I mean, that's astronomical when you think of the bottom line of the business. So for me, who's responsible? I think we all are in the sense of we need to be educated. We really need to understand the impact of food insecurity. What is it costing us 
every single day. And then how do we address it? You know, do we address it with the working wage? I don't know that. Do we address that with, you know, affordable housing, affordable childcare? There's so many things that go into what all of this makes up. You know, food insecurity is just one little piece. Um, But if we can think about hunger or that hunger bill being $160 billion and how that impacts all of us, I mean, just think about our children at school. If they're nourished, they're well-fed. And like I said, they have a different trajectory of graduating and moving on. That only helps us as workforce development in the future. If I was a business leader, I would want a healthy workforce to pick from. If I want to have a strong a strong government, if I want to have a strong army uh, military, then of course I want strong, healthy women and men that could go off to war for us. I mean, that's why the National School Lunch Program was started in the beginning back in the 40s, because we had people who were malnourished and could not go off to war. And so I think also understanding the history. So I gave you a lot right there. You did. You gave me a real lot. But so, but there's an interesting, so, you know, I I have an economics background as well. And so I'm I'm hearing this from you and I'm hearing health, health and and productivity. And then, and then I'm, I'm wondering why, like in the past, um, as far as healthcare and the linkage to nutrition, well, for somebody like me, right, that should lose 500 pounds, it's like, hey, uh, you want to see a nutritionist? We'll tell you how to eat right, basically less calories. But why isn't there a real link then between healthcare or is there that I don't know about between healthcare and nutrition so that the healthcare is driving down their costs, you know, maybe even widening their margins and that employers are happy and everybody's happy? Well, it, it, it seems like we're reactive in the healthcare instead of proactive. And that nutrition is not really a component of this. Well, I think I think the tide's changing. We do have someone, the healthcare plan, Geisinger Health Plan. If you think of them right now, they're screening people for food insecurity. If someone screens positive for food insecurity and diabetes, they're actually referred to a fresh food pharmacy. We are a pilot for one of those fresh food pharmacies, and we we did see someone with their A one C, which is a test. It's a blood test for diabetes. It's a three-month test, and they went, dropped two points. So they went from a 9.5 to a 7.5. So there's, if you just Google food as medicine in anywhere, you'll probably start seeing these programs. There's other healthcare organizations doing this work. And, it, and I think the more that they're getting involved and they're showcasing that the importance of access to nutrient-rich foods will help with the chronic disease and preventing or managing. But this is new. I, I mean, we're talking, a, you know, maybe like five or six years. I could be wrong on that, but it's fairly new that we're doing this and it takes time to prove that. And you also have to remember that nutrition is a very young science compared to all the other sciences that are out there. And and it, it's one that's constantly evolving. It's also one that's highly controversial too, if you think about it. There's a lot of people who say that they're food and nutrition experts when they never even took a class in nutrition. And there's a highly, people can be highly influential on social media and in the media and not have the degree. So I think there's a couple things going on. But I, you know, as long as we're doing this work and for you having me on this podcast, talking about it, and healthcare organizations, doctors starting to screen for food insecurity and then prescribing food assistance programs. I think we're going to start over the next five, 10 years, see a, a change, or at least that's what I hope. And that's one of my missions with our nonprofit as well. Wonderful. And you're on this because you tie in so close with the Lands at Hillside Farms mission, which really is based on love your neighbor. That's like, if you, you could go on and on about mission, sustainability, recycling, food, families, but it's love your neighbor. So you, you, you said you said something interesting 
uh, about people saying what's good for, right? So I've noticed these trends, especially since I've been at Hillside. Um, so food X is going to kill you today, right? Three days from now, it's the best thing on the earth for you. And I noticed in the very beginning when I started, so I'm, I'm going back like 15 years. If you weren't eating organic, you were poisoning the earth and your family, right? And it felt like for me personally, honestly, even though I work at a farm with rotational grazing, a kind of elitism around organic, like, like can people really afford to do this? Can, can people really all afford to eat that way? You're raising a really good question about sustainability and what people eat. And I, if, if a mom. Outside of the ideals, I mean, I know there's ideals. No, no. but if a mom has to use soda to put her child to bed because the carbonation, the sugar gives fullness so the child doesn't have hunger pains. How do you have a conversation about what sustainable eating is with her? Because her definition of sustainable eating is going to be a lot different than what's sustainable to you. And I think a big piece of that, and that, that's where the dignity comes in. We need to understand what people actually have access to, what they desire, where's their food sovereignty, and what does that mean? Yes, do I think that we need to look out for our planet, but nutrition is not nutrition until we consume it. And if we if we keep promoting foods that people can't afford, it's not going to be good in the long run, right? Because it's just, it's expensive. They can't do it. it there's a lot of guilt and shame. If I can't, if I'm going to have guilt and shame that I can't feed my children the food that I'm told that that's what they're supposed to eat, that doesn't help the person. Instead, we need to find out where their barriers are and then how can we help them set up success that they define what success? What is success for them? What are those goals? And start making those strides forward. For me, and afford like if I'm going to think of a sustainable eating plan, it needs to be affordable. We need to be able to have access to the foods that we want them to be able to eat. That means what grocery store are they even able to get to? Do they have the transportation? And then the type of grocery store, the types of food at that grocery store. What are what's the cooking skill level? What's the cooking equipment? There's so many questions. I think we need to address before we can really start talking about how we define sustainable eating, because if we don't do that, that's a very privileged conversation to be having with someone who, and it also goes back to projecting our lived experience. And I know people are going to be listening to this and probably disagree or, or think maybe I don't care about the, the environment. I do, but a big piece of this is we have to get people to a place that they can have those conversations first. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And again, coming from a place where we pre, you know, grass-fed meats and rotationally grazed dairy, the truth is that there's an, there's an, it's an ideal, but it can't always be gotten. It just can't always be gotten. And so it's almost like if you could afford it. Um, you, you, you talked, you talked children a little bit. I mean, that's that's where everybody's heart is. And well. Most people's hearts are. And I always wondered, so, that, you know, this the hungry kid goes to school. Is this more of an emotional or physical issue? And what what is it that happens to that child biologically, emotionally? Um, how does it affect them? And sure. it, does it lead to a cost for all of us, essentially? Of course, it, of course it does. But I guess 
I mean, how do you feel when you're starving? I mean, I can I can tell you I'm miserable. You don't want to be around me. I get shaky. I could get a headache. I could be lethargic. Imagine if you were a child going to school and you didn't have access to free breakfast and now you're sitting in class and that's all you're thinking about, but you don't understand those emotions that, and the physical symptoms that you're having and that you can't get rid of them and you act out and you have a behavioral issue. That's what you're diagnosed with, with the the principal and the doctor, and now you're on certain types of medications. I mean, we see this cycling in and out. So yes, there's definitely emotional toll, a physical toll. Then they're malnourished, they're at risk of, of um, anemia, low bone density, you name it. And in high school, we see a, an increased risk of suicide. So um, it plays a major role. And we really need to make sure that we are investing and promoting the school lunch and breakfast programs, the after school programs, the summer meal programs. They are highly regulated by the government. I used to be a food service director, so I can tell you the audits were insane. It was the worst week of my life every year when I, <laughs> because they really made sure they would measure down to the sodium, the grams of sodium in each meal um, by looking at our record. So it's definitely it's really important to the future. We need to nourish our children and we need to we need to normalize food assistance programs and we need to really take down the stigma and the shame associated with it. There's more than enough food in the United States that's wasted that could help in hunger. We really need to take a strong look at that as a sustainability as we move forward. And we don't have a ton of time left, but it, it, it feels like there's that it should be regionalized or something, something like that the problem should be solved locally. And if everybody does that, there's this concept of bioregionalism for environmentalists way back in the day. Take care of your own backyard and the whole world will be clean. And and it feels like that could work here and that you, you guys need like expert um, experts in logistics, maybe even from the military or because really that's what it's about is there's tons of food all over the place. And then nice. there's people that have nothing to eat, right? Yeah. So. Well, I always said when I was at the food pantry, if everyone would just donate their extra cucumbers from their garden, we would have a lot of cucumbers. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's there. The food's there. And yeah. uh, I, I think that's all we have time for. I, I really appreciate you, Clancy. You know, you're a great person. Everybody loves you. And I, I just want to know, like, what could anybody who really wants to help with this do? I mean, just practically. I mean, if they can't stand in line handing out boxes every day, I mean, is it money? Is it just believing in it? I mean, I don't think so. I think, I think it's, it's action. Yeah, I agree. But I also think that it's how do we start asking better questions and judging less? How can we acknowledge our own situation of food insecurity? For many years, I said I never experienced food insecurity, but I survived on instant noodles in college. You know, how can we start identifying those moments, sharing our stories? And if you don't have a story, maybe start listening better and again, asking better questions. And once you start doing that, action will follow because your heart changed. It all goes back to compassion and empathy. Thank you very much, Clancy. You have a great day. You too. Thank you. Thank you.